Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast all about members of the historical community lowering their blood pressure by way of getting a lot of things off their chest, where we light the blue touch paper and stick around for the fireworks. I'm public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host and historian, and for this week, our very own tamed shrew, Kyle Glover. I'm not sure how to take that, but um, hello, everyone. Well, if podcasts be the fruit of rage, play on. This week, dear listeners, we are taking a dive into the murky world of Shakespeare, the theatre, and Tudor and Stuart England. And to guide us on this journey, we have historical map illustrator, Shakespeare historian, YouTuber, and host of that Shakespeare Life podcast, Cassidy Cash. Cassidy, welcome to History Rage. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Feeling angry? Oh, I'm ready to take this on, absolutely. Got, got a lot of rage that you need to get out there. Brilliant. Well, unlike many of our other guests, we actually didn't know you from any of our prior work in the background. We kind of connected on Twitter when I just observed some rage happening and thought, I need to capitalise on this. Uh, and since then, I've listened to a few episodes of the podcast, uh, namely the one on uh, witch bottles and that and the interview with Jonathan Ferguson of the Royal Armouries. Both excellent stuff. But for our other listener, tell us a bit about your background, your work, the projects that you're involved in and what you do. Yeah, uh, well, I started the podcast That Shakespeare Life originally because I was going to do a blog and people told me, Cassidy, you're writing. It's horrible. <laughs> don't don't write. Um, but I came across much better on video and in a conversation. And I was decent at the skill of getting people to tell their stories. So I decided I would share my love of Shakespeare history through conversation. And I dove into That Shakespeare Life and just started talking with the people that I would love to hear from and turned it into a show that launched into um, using my skills as an artist to do illustrations for the show. And that led into doing yeah. illustrations for other people. And of course, we're on YouTube uh, going a little further into the history, doing uh, recipes and food and games from the 16th century too. So it blossomed from there. Okay. So you've got the YouTube channel is, you know, how to play that game that appeared in that particular play or 
talk about yes. that food that's that's in there. Excellent. Now that bit I didn't know. It's brand new. Um, yeah. it's, That'll be a lie. I didn't know about it then, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> it's brand new. The first episode actually comes out this Saturday. We, um, we've we got a lot of people looking forward to it, but we're launching that new series this Saturday and we'll be doing exactly that, just going through recipes. I, I don't see why science class should get to have all the fun with the activities. I feel like yeah. history should be hands-on learning too. So it's it's all about things that you can do at home. Yeah. Yeah, and again, as I've said to one or two of our other guests, if they if that's kind of history teaching had been available when I was learning history, I might actually have a degree in it. That's what I yeah. Let's see. History is great. People just don't realise they should love it, me included. So, moving on from the thing that you love, then history rage is, of course, all about that thing that you hate, and we invite people on to confront that thing that they just want to get rid of. So, Cassidy, in your own time with as much rage as you like, which historical thing would you most like to see exit stage left pursued by a bear? I would really like to send the entire authorship question about whether Shakespeare was really Shakespeare get pursued by a bear and the the full-on dismembered by a bear. Let's just not have that (laughs) happen anymore. Let's move on now. This is silly. So... Tell us, for, for those of us that have not heard of this before, you know, we're, what is the, basically the authorship question? We'll come on to debunking it in a bit, but basically just what is this nonsense? When people use the phrase authorship question, they're referring to the difference between two schools of thought surrounding Shakespeare. One camp are people like myself called Stratfordians, and we believe that William Shakespeare was a real person from Stratford-upon-Avon, England, and that he really did write the plays attributed to him. The vast majority of scholars, and certainly among accredited scholars in this area of study, fall into this realm of, we are Stratfordians, Shakespeare was really Shakespeare. The second school of thought is this small, relatively fringe group of people that are just super loud with their opinions (laughs) and they're called anti-Stratfordians. It's a collective term for a broad number of essentially alternative theories around the idea that someone other than Shakespeare was behind that name. The premise for all of the theories, and there are several, is that William Shakespeare was essentially a pin name and that there's somebody else or sometimes groups of somebody else that operated as a nom de guerre, as it were. And um, I just think it's ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah, you you mentioned there that there's quite a, you know, there's quite a few theories, there's quite a few, there's quite a few groups. How long has this been going on? I mean, how did what's the history of this mythology? If you visit some of the anti-Stratfordian websites or publications, they will claim that the controversy over Shakespeare being a real person existed in the 17th century concerning Shakespeare's personal identity. And they, they have a lot of theories about why that might be true. But the traditional starting point for this conspiracy began with a man named Joseph C. Hart in the 19th century. He wrote a book in 1848 called The Romance of Yachting. And it's kind of a yachting like, you know, on a boat. And it's kind of a weird book because Mm. while it does contain some nautical terms and various sea-related phrases, like, you know, he goes through and defines them, it also dedicates about 50 pages to a discussion on the authenticity of Shakespeare's plays. I'm not sure where his editor was at the time of this, (laughs) 
you know, publication, but it go it got published in the bibliography of the Bacon Shakespeare literature. And this entire publication is most famous because in his diatribe against Shakespeare, it, he said that Shakespeare's plays contained evidence that many different authors, not a single author, worked on the plays we call Shakespeare's plays. And actually, I will grant Hart that he was right in his observation. And I think his criticism of the scholarship up to that point of largely ignoring that early modern plays were collaboratively written was a fair criticism. The problem Mm. I have with it is you can't really go from this play was written by multiple people to I think this one multiple person in that group just, you know what, he didn't exist at all. And to me, that's just, um, okay, that's kind of a leap. That's that's a huge leap. And so basically Hart's book got taken on by people who said, oh, okay, well, if they were written collaboratively, then Shakespeare's not real. And to me, that's that's not factual. You you to make that conclusion, you have to, as they say in crime dramas, you have to draw conclusions from facts, not in evidence. You know, it's like you you've gone too far. Yeah. So they claim it starts back in the you say 17th century. Yeah, there's there's some they'll they'll make those claims. They're um to me, that's not founded in an educated look at history and what the early modern period was like. So some of their their claims about, um, they'll, they'll say that Shakespeare couldn't spell his own name, or they'll say this person referred to him as, as something else. And, and they, they ignore a lot of facts about the way the playwriting yeah, industry yeah. worked at, to draw those conclusions. Most scholars attribute the start of the authorship question as 1848 with Joseph Hart. Right. And you mentioned uh, that according to them, according to the anti-Stratfordians, that the, the, the plays contain evidence that somebody else was writing. I mean, yes. can, can you give us an idea of just some examples of that that evidence? Um, well, they were. They were written collaboratively. And if you look up Shakespeare's plays written collaboratively, you can find examples of, you know, oh, okay, these... These, this play was written by, by multiple people. Like they'll, they'll go through and do linguistic analysis or computer analysis of the text has been done in modern times. And you can look at the plays and say, okay, well, they were written by, by multiple people. Like they'll point out Edward III has some Shakespeare, some Thomas Kidd, Henry VI, part one. There are some scholars that, that say, okay, Thomas Nash wrote some of this, Titus Andronicus was done in co- collaboration with George Peel and there's mm. there's other ones the the reason i think this argument doesn't f- justify concluding that shakespeare wasn't real is because it was industry standard for plays to be written collaboratively yeah the entire publishing industry the concept of what plagiarism meant was completely different in the 16th and 17th century and it was what you were doing as a professional would be to get advice from your your colleagues and your people in your industry there and to have their input on these plays and for them to be written. Shakespeare's plays are certainly not the only ones from the period that have multiple authors. And it was a totally different thing to create it and then to go and publish it. And if you look about the history of publishing the plays, there were there was a whole host of reasons to think they would have put Shakespeare's name on it. And even with Shakespeare's plays, the first folio is the first time Shakespeare's plays are published yeah. in memoriam to him. And so it just doesn't, they take these facts. Hart wasn't wrong that Shakespeare's plays are written collaboratively. It just doesn't make sense to say, okay, well, if he had help 
then he wasn't a real person. Yeah. That's well, absurd. Yeah. yeah, that extra conclusion that's been jumped to from what we do know. Yeah, it, it's 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 not that that their observations are inaccurate. It's it's just like saying I saw the sun come up this morning, so you must not be real. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So would it be fair to say that you know he's he's got his name on the play because he's writing most of it with with editing help coming in from for, from other sides. And it would be unfair to say then that you mention other writers like George Peel, Thomas Kidd, that that they write works that he will have helped with and his name won't be on any of their works either. Um I can't I mean I can't yeah. S- yeah. speak to that, but I would assume so. I haven't done research personally into collaborations. But I know I've had guests on my show that have, and that's what they shared with me was, yeah. you know, they looked into these works and it, it's quite complicated process. They have algorithms and things that they run the text through and they'll say, well, this percentage was written by Shakespeare and this percentage was written by Middleton and this percentage was written by, you know, someone else. And it's, I know a lot of work has been done on looking and doing those algorithms on Shakespeare's plays. I don't know how much work has been done into running those same algorithms on early, other yeah. early modern plays. So I don't have like a personal knowledge to rattle off the numbers there to you. I just know that yes, that that does happen. So if not Shakespeare, who is it that the anti-Stratfordians are claiming did write the plays, and how do we discount these theories about them? There are actually over 80 individuals who have been put forward at one point or another as potential alternatives for William Shakespeare. The most popular today, I think, when you look up the authorship question that you're going to hear about first, let's say, would be Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford. Originally, it was Francis Bacon that enjoyed the spotlight, and he still enjoys a decent following today as an alternative to Shakespeare. And as I mentioned, there are several others, but I will walk you through my personal objections to the Bacon and de Vere theories. And yeah. leave you to your your own scholarship about the other you know seventy eight yes. people. Um, the Francis Bacon option is based largely on conspiracy theory that ciphers are hidden in Shakespeare's plays, which spell out Bacon's biography. That one sentence there was enough <laughs> to be like, why am I going to read further? This is ridiculous. But one writer named Delia Bacon, who claimed to be related to Francis Bacon but was not, actually believed that she had decoded a message from Francis Bacon's letters suggesting there were secret documents buried in his tomb that proved Shakespeare's plays were actually Francis Bacon's. She felt that Sir Walter Riley, Edmund Spencer, and Francis Bacon had collaborated to form a secret society, and together they wrote the plays attributed to Shakespeare. It gives me a headache just to convey this information to you. (laughs) To try and prove her point, she went to Shakespeare's tomb, but she chickened out of actually opening the grave. And as a side note here, I would love to know how she she managed this, because I know his grave is, is guarded really well. When what I'm reading, it may have been, I wasn't clear if she was saying the secret documents were in Shakespeare's grave or in Francis Bacon's grave, but either way, she, she didn't get them. And it's probably just as well, because I don't I don't think they were there. But anyway, what, what's incredible to me about this theory is that the entire idea is founded on the belief that a cipher exists in the plays and that this conclusion that Bacon claims through a cipher in his letters to have written Shakespeare's plays 
there's not a lot of archival evidence or historical evidence actually pertaining to Shakespeare related to this argument at all. It relies completely on the, this assumption that a cipher exists in Shakespeare's place. But nevertheless, the Francis Bacon Society still exists in London today, publishing their magazines, the Baconian, to promote the theory to current and future generations. Now, Edward de Vere yeah. was first proposed by a candidate named J. Thomas Looney in 1920. <laughs> That is that man's actual unfortunate name. Good. Excellent. That's his actual unfortunate name. And again, with this theory, it relies pretty heavily on... It's founded on a single person's opinion as opposed to historical facts. They point towards their presumed idea of what Shakespeare's personality was and argue that that personality doesn't match the personality of the person who wrote the plays. That right there is already suspect to me because you can't know someone's individual personality from their writings, even things like legal documents, it would be hard to get to know a person on a personal level through that content. How they think they know Shakespeare's personality is based on things that they ascribe certain values to, like where Mm. he lived or what his job was at the time. And they think that someone of Shakespeare's station wouldn't have written about aristocracy, for example. They think that because Shakespeare's writings contained educated information on the world, including Italy and France, that the writer of the plays must have been very broadly educated about the world with a vast array of personal experience, including travel that we can't prove or disprove that Shakespeare did. This argument doesn't hold water for me because I, I work in an art and film industry, and I know very well how easy it is for an artist to accurately portray a lifestyle career or mindset that they're not personally adhering to or not personally having any experience with, similar to how modern filmmakers bring in historical consultants to write period dramas. Shakespeare consulted the knowledge he needed to write the plays he was writing. Looking into the sources of Shakespeare, the Greek and historical stories he used for the foundation of his plays were full of information and knowledge that he could have easily borrowed from his source material to put together. Additionally, writing about your travels and publishing it was common for early modern England. There were book stalls in St. Paul's Cathedral, and there's just ample opportunity for Shakespeare to supplement his personal experience and knowledge needed to write what he did without having to have personally gone to Italy or have personally been born um, into the royal family to write about royalty. It's just, um, that's absurd. But the main killer, I think, and the reason I get very tired of hearing about Edward de Vere as a candidate is primarily because he died in 1604. And there are over 12 of Shakespeare's plays, 14 if you count Othello and Measure for Measure, which are dated to 1604. And plays like Macbeth and The Tempest, and they were all written after Edward de Vere died. In some places, in some cases, close to a decade after he after he died, there are plays attributed to Shakespeare. Even the Oxfordians, as yeah. they're called, argue that these subsequent plays must have been written by someone other than de Vere, though they do stop short of arguing he could have written them after he died. But at the very <laughs> least, we know that the Shakespeare who wrote these last 14 plays was not clandestinely Edward de Vere because he was dead. And for me, that's enough evidence against him as an authorship candidate. And I I haven't felt the need to pursue that any further. Yeah. Being dead is no barrier to getting it published, but it is a barrier to getting it created in the first place. Exactly. Yes. And also if you are dead, you're not going to then ghost write it under somebody else's name. It wouldn't surprise me to see them come up with like zombie plays. Yeah. (laughs) I'd I'd so go for like zombie a zombie version. I I loved zombie Austin, so zombie Shakespeare, totally on board. We've launched a whole new film here. I see it coming. I'm just busy writing down the word zombie Shakespeare. (laughs) When you launch it on Broadway, I'll expect tickets. 
Of course, of course. Um, so we've already touched a little bit on this already, but um, one of the common beliefs about Shakespeare is that he was, shall we say, less literate than someone who would be able to write all of this stuff. Uh, we, we mentioned he, he can't spell his own name correctly. Uh, why is that? And oh. what do we know about Shakespeare's education? Okay, if we're going to be on the record about this, make sure that you note that what I said is that they argued he couldn't spell his own name correctly. Uh, yes. yes, it's um, argued he can't spell his name correctly. Good point. Yes. Yeah. Well, okay, so Shakespeare, I think this theory actually comes from just a lack of understanding, where people just don't understand how education and the English language actually worked in this time period. Classical education was the norm of the day, and this is the same education model you'll find at major Ivy League schools today here in the U.S. His local grammar school as a child, Edward VI Grammar School in Stratford-upon-Avon, taught the classics like Seneca, and these were just everyday books that, that children were reading and being educated upon. Now, I will say we don't know for certain that Shakespeare attended this school because there aren't records that we have found yet that specifically and conclusively tie him there, but it was the only school in his town. It was normal for kids, boys, to go to this school, so it, it would make sense that he did. But we do know that if he wasn't educated at this school in these classic literatures, then he definitely put the time in to learn them later independently because they're all over his plays. Ovid, for example, Mm. informs the gruesomeness of Titus Andronicus. There's Ovid in Venus and Adonis, and Ovid shows up again in Cymbeline and the Tempest. And there's good evidence that he read and learned from Latin handbooks and rhetorical theory. And these would have been standard fare for grammar school students. His works also display knowledge of several tragedies of Seneca and at least the first half of Virgil's Aeneid. If you were to compare the knowledge of classical literature that shows up in Shakespeare's plays with the repertoire of a current classics graduate from somewhere like Oxford, Shakespeare could arguably have a wider breadth of study based on what we know shows up in his plays. He alludes to classic comedy in his works, The Comedy of Errors, and it echoes themes of of Plautus. There was even one contemporary of Shakespeare, John Manningham of the Inner Temple. He recorded in his diary that the the play Twelfth Night, which also uses the same themes of the Comedy of Errors, was, quote, much like the Comedy of Errors or a work by Plautus, which I don't actually know how to pronounce. Manichme? Anyway. But they're watching it, and this observer from the audience says, hey, I see Plautus in this. So Even people who were there at the time saw that Shakespeare was well-educated. Now, did he get his education in school or was he self-taught? We don't have those documents to be able to prove where he learned it, but we do know that he learned it. And we also know when it comes to things like the spelling, the English language wasn't standardized at this point in time. It was... No, quite not. It was normal for words written on a page to be reflective of the dialect of the person speaking. And there's a whole lot of dialects in England and and depending on who was writing it, it would be spelled differently. It wasn't unique to Shakespeare for him to have written his own name different ways at different times that he wrote it because there was no standard way to spell anything, not just his name, but any word. There was no this word is always spelled this way. That was in flux at that time. So it's not a reflection that that Mm, he was illiterate. In fact, I think that's a product of studying like 19th and 20th century, where when someone was illiterate and they couldn't read or write, you you learned that about them through them putting like an X instead of writing their name. And so I think while on the one hand, it's understandable, 
that you might make that conclusion about Shakespeare. If you study the history of his time period, you, you learn um, and, and isn't learning really the answer for so many things. But learning how the English language worked and, and why his name was spelled in all these different ways answers that question for you. And some of the anti-Stratfordians, they never ask that question. They just say, well, he wrote his name several different ways and it's multiple different spellings. So that means he was stupid. Yeah. And that's, that's just, it's rude yeah. for one thing, but it's uneducated for another. Yes. I've seen medieval documents yeah. that spell the word the four different ways on the same page. Right. Yeah, so that's the, this is the kind of era we're talking about. Precisely. And using this as evidence, yeah. So I had heard banded around by more conspiracy types that they talk about not, not just a, a Shakespeare lack of literacy, but a lack of literacy kind of within the family, particularly aiming at his children, who they claim can't, can't read, write, and you would think that Shakespeare would have taught them. Now, is there anything actually in that? Is there anything that supports that at all? Do we even know what the literacy of his children look like? Um, we do know some about it. There's different arguments to it. Um, I'm under the impression Susanna Shakespeare was quite literate. She would go on to um, host major dignitaries at her home and, and different, different things that happened mm -hmm. there at the house that you simply couldn't manage without uh, being able to do that. Judith Shakespeare, I don't know. I haven't yeah. looked into whether or not she was literate, but I will say for the early modern period, you didn't learn to write first and then read. You learned to read first and then write. So it wasn't uncommon for people to be able to read, but not be able to sign legal documents, um, which would yeah. substantially increase your level of intelligence and education because you were able to gather knowledge from through reading, even if you couldn't necessarily turn around and write it yourself. So I think also phonetics did not exist in the English language yet. And there was no standard system of things that would arrive later with Noah Webster in the US and Dr. Johnson in e England, where they put these systems in place. And so that's another hindrance of we make the assumption that people would learn their ABCs and then learn to write and then learn to read because that's what we do now in English. That's not what happened during their lifetime. I don't think it would have been William yeah. Shakespeare that educated them necessarily, but I don't know that for sure. There was a woman named Elizabeth Cook. Her and her sister were very well educated by their father in this same time period. This Elizabeth Cook is actually the woman who opposed the Blackfriars Theater when Shakespeare and his uh, playing company tried to do that. She put a petition together against it. So you'll know her or you could know her in Shakespeare studies from from that, but her home, her, the way her and her sister were educated, um, people actually referred to their house as a female university because the level of education there was on par with what was being offered in royal households around England. So it's it's also a false assumption to assume that because they were girls, that they would have been um, illiterate or uneducated. There, that you can't just blanket that assumption over their family. And certainly I, I think there's, I know there's substantial evidence to suggest Susanna Shakespeare could read. I don't know about Judith. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So looking at Shakespeare's kind of life, what, what sources and records and historical evidence beyond the plays do, do we have about Shakespeare's life uh, and his, his background, both at home and then further afield? Yeah, we have a lot of legal and financial documents as well as family records like births, marriages, property sales. Um, he was involved in some... Judas Shakespeare and her husband caused a great deal of trouble legally, and so there's a lot of legal things associated with them. And a great resource if you want to see digital copies Mm -hmm. of these surviving records or places like Shakespeare Documented. The Folger has a great database called Luna and Hamnet. These are both online and digital. It's free to, to search them. And you can find primary documents you can use to explore the life of William Shakespeare and his family. We have a record of his application to get his coat of arms for his father, and we have various other legal records where he appears in the highly organized notes of the many English administrative bodies at this time. Now, what we don't have are Shakespeare's personal papers, like letters he wrote, for example. We mentioned Francis Bacon's letters earlier. We don't have letters like that from Shakespeare, and I'll defer to Shakespeare Documented and their explanation for that lack of papers. And they say that In general, personal papers only survive if they're absorbed into institutional archives or if they suffered from neglect in the, if they just got left in some noble's house where the house itself, it was a value to maintain it. Shakespeare's last direct descendant died in 1670 at which point his house, new place, and its belongings were sold. Remember, um, Shakespeare wasn't didn't hold the place or status in society that he holds now, and that really mm-hmm. didn't happen for um, his life and his reputation until the 18th or 19th century. So at this time in history, Shakespeare wasn't this famous person. There wasn't a concerted effort to, and there had been a concerted effort to destroy all the theaters in, in England under you know Cromwell. And, you know, so... The whole idea that they would have preserved these, it's possible they exist and we just haven't found them yet. But there was a period of like 200 years where it wouldn't have been automatic or assumed to save Shakespeare's personal yeah. stuff. So some of his papers have, have been lost. And there are things that we just don't know about Shakespeare. And that's, that's also fair to say. To just sort of expand from, on that slightly, what do we know what kind of circles Shakespeare moved in? How does he go from living in a small town in Warwickshire to the centre of London and putting on performances for royalty. It really wasn't uncommon for men and boys from small towns to travel to somewhere like London in search Mm. of a career or to seek their fortunes there. The economic opportunities in a small town were commiserate with the town's size, which meant anyone of any significant ambition would want to go to London because you're going to be a farmer if you stay in the Mm. small town, most likely. There are other jobs. You could be like a cobbler or something. You could find something to do, but you're not going to make it big. So it's not, it's not a, 
it's not uncommon for people to to leave. Stratford-upon-Avon, at the time that we think Shakespeare would have been considering going to London, was experiencing some very um, hard times. There was a major flood that happened there and, and other economic challenges were going on in Stratford that, that further provide evidence of, you know, a young William Shakespeare who was at this time like 23, just married, small baby. He, he needs to make some money and he would have been motivated to make that happen. Now, the years when Shakespeare goes to London are actually known as his lost years. We know he got married and had a daughter, but we're unclear exactly what he was doing or where he was at specifically. We know his family was going through difficult financial times. His father had gone through um, a bankruptcy and was um, almost uh, slandered and in kind of a bad way. So there's evidence to suggest that he would have been very personally motivated to get out of Stratford-upon-Avon out of necessity. Laurie Johnson at the University of Queensland recently discovered some evidence that suggests Shakespeare may have been influenced by Lester's men traveling around the country. We know that Lester's men playing company came to Stratford-upon-Avon when Shakespeare was about 11. They performed for the Queen of England at Robert Dudley's marriage proposal for Elizabeth I. That was a huge event and only a few miles from Stratford-upon-Avon, certainly walking distance for a young boy and, and his family that might have wanted to see the queen. Obviously, we don't have documents that say, you know, there's no like signed affidavit. William Shakespeare yeah. attended the, you know, performance of the queen. So yeah. I can acknowledge we, we don't know if Shakespeare was there. We do know it took place and it's not outside the scope of comprehension to think he would have gone to see it. Further, Lester's men was performing in Stratford-upon-Avon when Shakespeare's dad was in charge of approving playing companies that performed in the town. And we do actually have paper records indicating that this occurred. So we know that Shakespeare's father had direct contact with Lester's men playing company. The general thought is that a young William Shakespeare who had been learning about plays and performing them as part of his grammar school education, because if you don't know, Edward VI grammar school, instead of like a final exam at the end of the year, the young students would perform a play to demonstrate what they had learned. Remember, they were learning Greek and Latin theater. So they would then perform yeah. those to say, hey, here's, here's what we learned from the year. So he had a background in performance and playwriting already, we think. And so it's thought that Shakespeare might have joined up with one of the playing companies and went with them to London first as a player and then getting on as a playwright, that would explain how he seems to have all of these industry connections. But we, the main way that we know Shakespeare arrived in London is from Robert Greene's Grotesworth of Wit, which was essentially this scathing review of Shakespeare that indicates that at least by the time this was written, Shakespeare had was established and making quite a splash in the industry, going so far as to hugely uh, annoy people to the point that they're writing these treaties against him. So as far as how he gets to perform with royalty, that came about largely due to the impact of plague. The Queen of England had established her own playing company that was in competition with those of her nobles. And Shakespeare's company was one of these nobles, was under one of these nobles, which playing companies had to be patronized by someone who essentially said this, this is a legitimate company. You would get thrown in jail if you weren't. So uh, plague comes through London and yeah. essentially wipes out everyone's playing company. There, nobody has enough players now to have a single theater. And the enterprising Shakespeare and Burbage put together a playing company from these remnants. Now, they were never officially patronized by Elizabeth I, but they were made up of the best players in London that survived the plague. Um, and when she wanted a performance, they were the ones to call because not only were they the best, but they're now the most prominent. Later, James I would officially patronize the Lord Chamberlain's men 
and set them up as the king's men then. And this was similar to winning a grant yeah. within an organization. They were essentially sponsored by the highest ranking organization in the nation. It was a huge honor and definitely contributed to Shakespeare's status. By this time, though, he was uh, officially a gentleman in his own right because of his father. In 1596, William Shakespeare had helped his father apply to get a coat of arms and in and English societal laws allow that on the death of a gentleman, the title goes to his heir. So William Shakespeare then becomes a gentleman after his father dies. So that's how he achieved the status of gentleman. And that was not necessarily common for players in general. But that's that's how yeah. he goes from one place to the other. Is there a case there that he may have the title of gentleman, but as you can see from like writings of Robert Greene, he doesn't necessarily belong in that circle, even if he's got the title. Is he still somewhat of an outsider? He catches a lot of grief from a lot of people. Some of it just fun, like from from Johnson and others that kind of make fun of him not being university educated, for example. He didn't go to university. No. So he he definitely catches some flack. And I think there are definitely contemporary references to people who questioned whether or not he he belonged there. But I think if you look at the trajectory of anyone who's gone from a small town to achieve a level of success and status, there's always uh, the haters, if you will, the people who go, you know, you, yeah. I wanted it to be me, you know, and the, they kind of um, <laughs> make that claim. So I, I think Shakespeare had his, uh, his, his share of people who who questioned his legitimacy for sure and still does uh, and yes things, things like referring to him as an upstart crow thinking of in particular from the comedy sh- series yes well the see upstart crow was robert green's yes. phrase he tells he says that he was beautified by our feathers and so robert green's entire beef with shakespeare was he thought that he was just this guy who showed up and is making a splash in the industry, but he wouldn't be anybody if we hadn't set this up yeah, for him. Of course. Which was true. You know, Shakespeare and Burbage were completely changing the industry. They were they were ushering in what you call disruptive innovation. Prior to Shakespeare and Burbage setting up the Globe and and the theater, this this whole idea of having an established playhouse where the audience comes to you and sees a performance had never been done. The entire mm-hmm. concept of of having a shareholder agreement where you have this board essentially of we're we're all owners in this and we're going to make a percentage of of the ticket sales and a percentage of of the the house sales. You know. That had never been done. And before that, if you were a playing company, you traveled around England going to where the audiences were and you would perform in an inn or you would perform at the house of a noble. And Shakespeare's company does this during time of plague, but they're the first people stepping up to say, hey, you know what? We want to change the way this works. We want to have a little bit more security. We want to have a little bit better situation. And so I mean, I would give the masterminding uh, credit for putting that together to James Burbage and then later the shareholder company, but they really were challenging the the old guard, if you will. They, you know, Robert Greene and, and others of him who came out of the old way of doing things would have felt very threatened by what Shakespeare was coming in and doing because him and that entire playing company are changing the way theater is done. So it makes sense that Robert Greene would, would be annoyed. Yeah. Yeah, if you spent a lot of time in uh, and a part of that establishment, somebody that waltzes in from Warwickshire and starts kicking everything over and making a success of it is going to get right up your nose. And not necessarily being respectful to the way that, you know, I mean, Robert Greene was a very well-known and successful player in this industry in his own right. He he was 
he did well, you know, and Shakespeare's showing up going, I don't want to do it the way that you have. And Robert Greene is like, well, thank you very much. I've spent all these years doing, I know what I'm talking about, you know, and, yeah. and Shakespeare's going, no, I'm going to do it different. That rubs some people the wrong way. So moving back to the, moving back to the myths that we've, we've been discussing and what the history rage is about then this, this authorship question and all of this just conspiracy to debunk a famous author, whether you like him or not, or famous playwright, should I say, whether you like him or not. How do we beat this theory? How do we make it go away? <laughs> With a club, no. Um, <laughs> we, I think education and, and learning really is the, the answer. And obviously that's what I believe because uh, that's what we do on that Shakespeare life and on DIY history where, we're, you know, I say every week, I hope you learn something new about the Bard. That I think if you are learning about the life of William Shakespeare, there's plenty of evidence to suggest he was a real person and that he really wrote the plays that we attribute to him. The anti-Stratfordian perspective is based almost exclusively on circumstantial evidence that includes, among other things, a, a rather neglect of facts about how things worked in the past. Um, for example, there's one anti-Stratfordian group that loves to make a mountain out of the fact that Shakespeare was not known as a, quote, writer. He was known mostly as a poet, a player, and a theater owner, but he did not have the term writer applied to them. And they stop there with that information and go on to say that because that's true about Shakespeare, it means that he wasn't a real person. Instead of pointing out that nobody was known as a writer, <laughs> they weren't writers. They were poets. Um, and that's what he aspired to be. It's what he was called. And it's what people in his industry were called to ignore the terminology of the day and use that ignorance essentially to fuel your argument is at best uneducated. And they'll also point to how, you know, his name is spelled differently. And we've, we've yeah. already covered how that's just ignorant about how English works to, to have it spelled you know, the wrong way. And far from being evidence that he wasn't a real person, it shows that he was exactly what people in his time period were expected to be. And he's performing in the way that 16th and 17th century people did. Yeah. And for these reasons, I think that anyone who thinks Shakespeare was not a real person should look into the past and learn about what life was like in the 16th and 17th century. Um, I think that's one reason I don't particularly feel the need to feel, I don't really feel threatened in terms of these organizations putting out their theories, because if you look into the past and you study the history and you seek to, to learn, you know, who is this William Shakespeare, you find that he's, he is, you know, a real person and he did really cool things and he lived in a really amazing time period. Yep. Just to give a little, I, I don't know, I guess to, to, I realize we're raging here, but just to give kind of a not so harsh look at the anti-Stratfordians. I do think that people like Mark Twain and George Eliot, who wrote under pen names and were entirely something other than what you were led to believe by their works and what they published, this, this 20th century mindset feeds this questioning of, of William Shakespeare. And I will say that personally, I think it's excellent to ask questions. And it's always good mm -hmm. to, to say, do I really know what I think I know? I think you are, there's always the possibility that you're going to learn something new that you didn't know before. There's going to be some discovery, some study that says, oh my gosh, if I knew that one thing, it makes everything I thought I knew, I got to go back and look at it differently. That's, that can happen. And it's not a bad idea to ask questions and to go and investigate and make sure that you do know what you know, you think you know. With the life of William Shakespeare, I have not come across in my 
research or in, in any of, of the over 200 you know podcast guests we've had on our show to date that yeah. present any evidence to me that would suggest Shakespeare was not a real person. I have not found or heard of evidence that can't easily be debunked by basic uh, history facts. And so that's what lands me in firmly in the Stratfordian camp is it's like there's just there hasn't been an argument that convinces me we need to revisit this. Excellent. Well, thank thank you very much for that, Cassidy. Thank you. Do you feel better? I do. Thank you so much. (laughs) I got I got it off my chest. (laughs) Thank you very much for coming on and for sharing your four hundred years or so of anger, your very own (laughs) tempest, if you will. Gosh, I've been carrying that around Um, a long time. Yeah. Thank you. If you'd like to know more about Cassidy's work, then first you check out her website at www.cassidycash.com and you can listen to the podcast That Shakespeare Life and check out the new YouTube channel DIY History. You can also follow her on Twitter at That Shakespeare and we're going to put links to all of these in the show notes as well. Okay, so Cassidy, thank you very much because that was such a rage. Thank you, fellas. It was great to come and yell today with you guys. I appreciate it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at, at History Rage or individually. I'm at Paul Bavel. I'm at Kyle G History. And you can leave comments, thoughts, and please send your own History Rages using the hashtag History Rage because we want to know what really gets on your nerves. If you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe. Leave us a review on any of your podcast providers, wherever you get your podcasts. It really means a lot to us when you do that. From all of us here at History Rage, thanks a lot for listening. Bye. Bye.